Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. For today, on episode 31, Drew and I have a very special guest with us to discuss the first half of book three of The Wheel of Time, The Dragon Reborn. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos. I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And I'm gonna let uh, I'm gonna let Drew introduce our special guest. Drew, take it away, my friend. Yeah. So today we have with us Craig Hanks from the Legendarium podcast. Welcome aboard, Craig. Yeah, we do. Woo! Hey, everybody. Hi. And you know, I gotta tell you, I've played a little bit of StarCraft with this guy, and he is about the cheesiest Platinum League player Ooh. I've ever encountered. Ooh! Wow! Ooh. Shots fired! <laughs> wow! Damn, that's scathing. I, but, you know what, Craig? Drew, Drew what's your uh, Drew? So, what's yeah, your no, Platinum League? Tell me again. Hmm? Oh, yeah, the last time I laddered was oh, two years ago, and I was gold one. <laughs> oh snap! I have to apologize. So I'm shooting above my pay grade here. Yeah, yeah. yeah Drew texted me uh, earlier this morning and said, "Hey, do you mind, Rob? If uh, once you introduce me, I just get to I get a chance to insult Greg, and I get to introduce him." And I was, uh, "Greg, oh my God, Craig, listen to me saying the wrong name for our podcast guest. Jesus Christ." <laughs> He said, I need to insult Craig. This is something you need to let me do. And I said, okay, all right. I'm intrigued. Go for it, my man. Yeah, it's something so, we do at the, the beginning of every uh, Legendarium podcast. I insult all my panelists. Uh, awesome. So Awesome. If I can dish it, I better take it. I, su- I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Well, hopefully you feel right at home now on the Inking Out Loud podcast, right? There you go. <laughs> so, Drew, my man, give us a recap of what we've read so far. Yeah, so today we're going to be covering the uh, just about the first half of The Dragon Reborn. We're going to be going up to chapter 29. Uh, it's called A Trap to Spring. And basically, the first half of this book, we get a lot of Perrin. Uh, we get a lot of Egwin. And for the first time in the Wheel of Time, very exciting, we get points of view from Matt Coffin. And, uh, Finally. Yeah, so Matt, in the first half of this, uh, was brought to the White Tower by... Egwene, Nynaeve, Elaine, and Varen, uh, and was healed after some deliberation where Swan Sanche, the Amerlin, uh, wasn't sure if she wanted to let him live or not. <laughs> uh, but eventually they did heal him. Uh, Egwene and Elaine have been raised to the accepted, and along with Nynaeve, have been set to hunt the Black Aja. And meanwhile, Rand has run away from Warren and Lan and Perrin and all the rest, and is heading toward Tyr. And so the rest of the group is chasing after him. So, uh, yeah, we, we got a, a faster start here to this book than uh, both in Eye of the World and The Great Hunt, in my opinion. I, you know, we kind of hit the ground running with a Trolloc attack on the Dragon Reborn's camp. We get some uh, fireworks with the Wonder Girls as they're going back to Tarvalon and encounter Dane Bornhald and the other White Cloaks. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of fun stuff that, that's happened so far. So, but but I want to yeah. See for me, I for the longest time I I would have disagreed since I'm such a huge Rand fan, and I always just want to get back to oh. Rand. And we get such a, a lack of Rand for the first well for throughout this entire book, if I'm being completely honest. So for me, it kind of dragged for the first few times. But now that I'm now that I'm a little more on the Egwene and Nynaeve train, now that I'm a little more on the Perrin train, things are definitely moving at a <laughs> noticeably faster clip than I remember um, remember them moving. Yeah, what do you think, Craig? No, I, I think I agree with all of that, with the possible exception that um, 
I, I okay I should say I don't know if this is a faster beginning but I've always loved uh, the beginning of book two versus this one um, really okay. yeah I, I love that uh, wh- where are they Faldara at the beginning of book two yeah they're kind the, of uh, Faldara mm-hmm. keep um, yeah something about the the Rand and Lan uh, yes. relationship and, and all that so with without that um, I I don't like the beginning of this book as much although I will acknowledge that the excitement factor is uh is much bigger right up front so i'll give you that for sure agreed agreed yeah yeah and i I will note uh there was a a nice uh kind of callback with lan and rand at the beginning of this where rand is being so bitter and combative with moiraine and with everybody and then lan tells him listen you know the whole world is riding on your shoulders you got to be a man about this and rand immediately calms down and kind of recenters himself and he goes you know yeah, you're right. You know, I'm I'm doing what I have to do, and it's it's a really nice little uh, you know touchstone that Rand has when he's around Lan because he's, as we talked about Rob, you know, on our Great Hunt episodes, like Lan in a lot of ways is a father figure for Rand, mm. and uh, and and while he's not around Rand for a lot of this series, when he is at the beginning of these early books, we get those moments where Lan helps center Rand, and put him on the right path. Yeah, but. But what I want to talk about a little bit is is the uh, writing style that Jordan employs, Sweet. especially in this book, with point of view and how he uses a lack of Rand points of view to really up the tension. You know, we have these small intermittent spots with Rand, but otherwise it's everything's from parents' point of view chasing Rand. You know, and then we we jump away and we go to the White Tower where nobody knows what's going on, and. We and he does the same thing with point of view there, where he puts you in the head of the person in a, a conversation who doesn't know as much. So he keeps you in the dark, but in a natural way. And then there was one really cool spot that I noticed after Egwene talks to Varen and gets the papers, you know, about the Black Aja. There's a very, very short Varen point of view, and even in that point of view, she. Uh, she kind of thinks about things in a more complete way, but trails off in, you know, Varen's uh, absent-minded way. And it, it leaves us really suspicious about her and also really uh, intrigued about where it's going. So I, I really appreciated the way Robert Jordan uses point of view in the early parts of this book. Well, I like what you're saying, Drew, and I feel like this is kind of an important point especially if you are an aspiring author or you know a full-fledged author and you want to know how to create tension in a narrative like this because the central conflict in this book i mean okay it's a robert jordan book there are a thousand conflicts that are all kind of tied (laughs) together but the central one is the question of whether rand is crazy He's been channeling right. for long yeah. enough now that people are wondering, oh, you know, has he reached that yet? You never know when a guy is going to break and go crazy. Uh, and so if you were with Rand the entire time, it would be easy for you as the reader to say, oh, no, he's not crazy. He's obviously, you know, I'm getting his point of view. I know exactly what's going through his head. But as you're kind of chasing after him as the reader, you're like, oh, geez, look at this trail of bodies. Hey, oh, this yeah. this may not be yeah. going the way that we wanted it to with Rand. No, that's a really good that's mm-hmm. a really good point you just brought up there, Craig. Because that's kind of one of my only gripes about Rand in in the earlier parts of the series, particular right here in this book. I always found it 
a little odd just how much more insane he felt in this book than in other books. Like, if we have him kind of... For example, the scene where he's hunting the Dark Hounds. Or, unless we... Yeah. We might have actually got more than one scene concerning that. And, like, you know, uh, Teleron Riyadh from Egwene's point of view when she yeah. runs into him. You know, these, these, these few, startlingly few, but really creepy... And, and chilling points of view that we get from Rand kept just making me think, God, he's like, he's already losing his mind. Like, is it just me or does he feel more insane in The Dragon Reborn than he feels at any other point in the series? No, I, I don't think it's you. I think uh, this goes to, and forgive me if I have uh, a somewhat imperfect understanding of all the timeline of this, but uh, that's okay. This was supposed to be originally the uh, the ultimate chapter in. The Wheel of Time. Robert Jordan planned this as a trilogy, right? And then kind of had to had to retrofit yeah. it later when the books became so successful that he was allowed more leash uh, to explore the world further. So, in his original outline, I could see it being the case where, you know, yeah, he had to ramp up that crazy so that that could be that that conflict that gets resolved by the end of the story, right? Um, and so later on. You know, in books, what, four through seven, eight, nine, something, you know, we're we're going to end up dialing back the crazy again uh, because there's a lot more story to go through. But originally, this was supposed to be kind of the, the climax of it all, right? So Drew looks like he wants to jump so, on this point like a duck on a beetle. Let's hear it. What do you got, dude? Yeah, uh, so I have an alternate uh, possible explanation uh, for this. He did plan it as a trilogy, but... It was very, very early on that uh, Tom Doherty, you know, the owner of Tor Books, yeah. you know, his publisher, the big chief. basically told him, listen, let's give you a contract for six books. You're not going to be able to fit this all into three. And as the series played out, what I think the original outline for a trilogy was, was the first book, so to speak, ended with the Dragon Reborn. The plot for the first book in his outline covered Eye of the World, Great Hunt, Dragon Reborn. The second book, the plot covered the Shadow Rising through Winter's Heart, and the climax of that was the climax of Winter's Heart, this, you know, without going into detail, oh, yeah. you know, with the Choiden call. And then the third book was Crossroads of Twilight through A Memory of Light. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the Crossroads of Twilight episode. But narratively speaking, the structure of that book is all setup. It's all exposition and buildup in the early part of many plot lines that is all concluded in Knife of Dreams, The Gathering Storm, Tires of Minette, etc. So, and I don't know this for sure because I'm not one of the lucky few who's gotten to see Robert Jordan's notes and, you know, I'm not Therese or Linda Taglieri or anybody like that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll get into that library there, but, but that Would is that the impression that I got. Um, that we have, okay. in a very, very bloated manner, <laughs> a trilogy structure to the <laughs> 14 books of the Wheel of Time. <laughs> in a very bloated manner. I could, I mean, I could see that. I could see that being the case. But, like, he definitely does feel, as I was saying earlier, he just does feel more insane. And perhaps it was as Craig was saying, it's just because we got so... Like, if we had been in Rand's head for... A lot longer for the same you know amount of time that we were in eye of the world in the great hunt he might not seem as insane right, right? yeah so that yeah that's a good i point. i, that's I a good agree point. with that i, I yeah. hadn't considered that going forward 
probably will consider. And it is forward. something yeah. to. Uh, what you know, about as, uh, anything? As Craig said. Sorry, go ahead, dude. Uh, yeah, like as Craig said, it, it is something to consider, like from a, a craft perspective as a writer, the way Robert Jordan uses point of view to illuminate and to hide at the same time. Because we're we're dealing with unreliable narrators in this, you know, it's a third person limited perspective. And you know, we talked about this with Egwene, for instance, in the uh, the Ravens prologue back in the Eye of the World, where it's Robert Jordan kind of giving us a signpost saying, this is the kind of narrator we're going to be dealing with in these books. You have, you know, a point of view of a nine-year-old girl who's all about being the best water carrier ever. And she's so determined and she's so excited about being the best and, and getting advancement early. And then if you actually read the action she's taking, she's a terrible water carrier. She's <laughs> slacking off the whole time, you know? And so we, we move through these books, and yeah. each character remains unreliable. They hide things in their own thoughts. And at the same time, he uses those brief, you know, like Varen, for instance. You have a, an Egwene point of view where she's getting this information about, you know, the, the papers and, and the, the fragment about Balzaman and the world of dreams. But she doesn't understand anything. And then we get a very brief, you know, uh, uh, maybe two, three paragraphs from Varen's perspective that illuminates even more about what we just learned but raises more questions and hides the answers of them like it's it's so deftly done robert jordan really was a master of point of view yeah well speaking of points of view i just re i just realized during your explanation there drew that we actually had another example of uh jordan's uh I guess proclivity for building up narrative tension with only a certain few sparse points of view. We got that a lot in The Great Hunt, now that I think on it, with Jeff mm, from Bornhold mm -hmm. as he's investigating the, the arrival of the Shan Chan, right? We got yes. these very few but very, very graphic and horrifying points of view that are that are clearly building up towards a big, you know, uh, confrontation towards the end of the narrative, right? That was, yeah. uh, that was, that was very well done. You're right. He, I, I would say... Jordan is a master at this. At this in particular, especially, he's a master. Mm -hmm. Now, so uh, do you guys have anything more to talk about as well, far as like the writing since goes? Since you just went please? off on a little bit of a tirade, not not tirade, but a bit of an explanation about Egwene there, <laughs> I, I just realized we hadn't actually asked uh, Craig yet. Craig, yes. How do you feel about oh. Egwene, my friend? Um, look, if I were, but characters on a printed page. Uh, I would like I would be pursuing her uh, forever. I love Egwene. I love her so much. Really? Yeah, I love everything Big about Egwene. Cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I love Egwene. Um, she's not okay. my favorite character in the city or in the in the story, but um, she is. I, I I find the anti Egwene sentiment across Watt fandom to be uh, perplexing at best and troubling at worst. Interesting, interesting. Very I can tell we're going to have some excellent discussion points here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in between you two. I, like, I, for a large part, I'm not a big Egwene fan, but there are certain books where I like, I just can't deny it that I am absolutely a big fan. Probably the the most notable uh, example being uh, the Gathering Storm. I love Knife Egwene of Dreams in the Gathering Storm. Knife of Dreams. Okay, yeah. She's she's at her absolute best in Knife of mm, Dreams. She know. has very little Sanderson page time, which is unfortunate. So well but in book twelve, though, oh, it was so awesome. We'll we'll get to that dis <laughs> yeah, discussion. <laughs> okay. We got some time, but, right? Uh, no, Egwene, yeah. hey, uh, and yeah. I I apologize for people who are like Craig. Stop talking about book two. Um, but we do <laughs> <laughs> we do get 
in this book, at the in the first half of this book, I'm being reminded of what happens at the end of book two, and it keeps coming up throughout the series. We're going to see it again, especially in the first half of book four, uh, where Egwene's primary motivation right now is I will not be collared again. Yeah, I am nobody's right. captive. I am nobody's slave, and uh, you know she may or she may or may not always do the right thing and i get that some people think that she you know is too much of yeah well i don't want to get too much into it she's too this or too that um but i one thing i've always loved about reading Egwene is that her motivation is clear it's uh it's understandable and it's extremely believable where this the most yes. horrific thing that i can think of happens to her at the end of book two uh, with the collar that gets put on her. Yeah. Uh, and so throughout this book, as she's kind of remembering that, reliving it, um, it's uh, always been a very powerful uh, a very powerful image to me, to think of Egwene that way. Sweet. Sweet. Right. Well, it sounds like we're actually yeah, yeah, getting I, close I to I our agree. character discussion. Yeah. Go ahead, Drew. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to cut so, you off, my man. Yeah, let's... Let's go into character discussion here, and let's let's Sweet. kick off with Egwene since we're we're there already. Yeah, you know, and and I think I mentioned this in our in our Great Hunt episodes, and and I'll say it again: there are like I am a self-professed not a fan of her. Like I I have a lot of problems with her character. He's being very modest, but he loves. No, it wait, 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 wait! Can I pause you there, Drew? <laughs> I want you uh, I yeah, want you yeah, to make sure. your point, but I also just I I want to so that I can clearly understand what you mean. Do you mean that if she lived down the street from you, you would hate her? Or do you mean that you have problems with the way that Robert Jordan went about writing her or something like that? It's a good question. I mean, if she were my neighbor, we would not get along. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. She, <laughs> I if she were my Robert neighbor, Jordan we wrote... would be carrying on a torrid love affair. So Sweet. Yeah. Okay, girl well, uh, next door versus bitch next door. Kind until, of scenario. until she just drops you to the curb because you don't give her what she wants anymore. But, uh, anyway. <laughs> but I do think Robert Jordan wrote a brilliant character in Egwene. As you said, Craig, she is Undoubtedly. so believable. You know, her, her motivations uh, hit home in a lot of ways. You know, they're, it's, it's a, a really fleshed out, realized character arc across the whole series. Her motivations make sense. What she does makes sense in the context of her personality. You know, uh, but where my issues come in are like in the areas she treats the people around her, essentially. And and her hypocrisy and a few things, especially later on. But, uh, but in these early books, as I was saying, I don't have as much of an issue with Egwene. There, there are little flare-ups here and there where she'll do something that annoys me, and uh, and you know I'm like, wow, you know this is just laying the the path for where she's gonna go later on. Like for instance, there's a uh, one scene early on where uh, Nynaeve, uh makes a comment. I think it was when they were uh, reading through the you know the the list, uh, like the yeah the lists, and. Egwene is being kind of foolish, and Nynaeve makes a remark, and instead of being self-aware about Egwene's foolishness, she immediately turns and, like, insults Nynaeve. Mm, she instead does it a few of times. owning, you know... Yeah, and, it, like, it's little things like that 
And to be fair, in this book, and in a certain segment of the fifth book, uh, Nynaeve is also like that. And maybe that's just sure. that Two Rivers stubbornness coming out. Could be. You know? <laughs> but but for the most part, Egwene in this, I, I've i been engaged, you know, with her. I, I haven't had a problem. I especially think her uh, accepted test was poignant, profound at points. Uh, yeah. And... and one thing that I was really cognizant of reading through this time was the way Egwene's knowledge shapes the trials, the three trials that she goes through, where she'll learn something after, like, in a trial or talking with Shiri immediately after, and then that brand new knowledge informs what her next fear is going to manifest as. And the big one there is the the turning oh, okay. with a capital T, the okay, 13 so by 13 method. I had wanted you know, to ask and, you about that later in our, our lore with Drew. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and, and this ties back to uh, what I talked about, Rob, in our Great Hunt episode around Nine Aves. My theory of what this Tarangreal is, or was originally, and for, for you, Craig, I don't know if you've... Uh, no, in fact, you, you can't have heard that episode because it hasn't gone live yet. Um, <laughs> uh, it, essentially what I think this was, was a training Tarangreal in the Age of Legends for people to get controlled circumstances on their first taste of Teleronriad. And obviously we know from these scenes with Egwene that there is some sort of a, a uh, resonance going on between the Dream Ring and and the Accepted. You know, So there's some kind of Teleronriad similarity there. And the reason that people go in seeing their fears is because they expect to see their fears. They go in with something in their head, yeah. and it manifests in the world of dreams. Oh, yeah, it uses your own and worst so, fears against you, yeah. Exactly. And and so with Egwene here, this is just more kind of uh, evidence for that theory, because she's just learned that it's possible for a channeler to be turned to the shadow with this 13 by 13 method, and then, like, 20 seconds later she goes through and her fear is about yeah. getting turned to the shadow you know and it, it's uh it, it's it's really interesting to like compare her trials versus Nynaeve's trials because Egwene is like actively building her fears as she goes through these whereas Nynaeve everything in it was kind of already like preordained so to speak it was all prior knowledge, prior things in her, whereas Egwene had these things actively changing as she went through them. And I was very engaged with that. That was probably when I enjoyed reading Egwene the most in this book so far. Can I use this as a point to jump in and extol Robert Jordan's writing style? I mean, I know we were just talking about writing oh, style, so course. I'm, I'm kind of going all back. over the place, my friend. Um, but <laughs> there, this is when we talk about Robert Jordan's long-windedness, it is, I think, both his greatest strength and one of his greatest weaknesses, right? Uh, you know, people talk about the slog yeah. and whatnot. I'm sure you guys will talk about that more in later books. Uh, and so oh, could he could he get carried away? Absolutely. But on the other hand, you think about this scene with Egwene and the Turangriol in the hands of another author and another editor, and would this have even survived into the final draft? I don't think so. They would say, no, we've, we've already seen this uh, Tarangreal thing with Nynaeve. We don't need this scene again. It's the same thing all over again. But 
uh, Robert Jordan says, no, I, I need this scene hmm. in my book. Pragmatic. I I can see that. I, I, I need this scene in my book because it's not about the Turang Real. It's not about, um, you know, seeing the cool magic that's going on. What it is, it's about learning about Egwene and her <laughs> psyche and whatnot. Uh, and so we're yeah. going to get we get a few Turangreal scenes like this, or when we get to the Aelfin and the Eelfin, you know, there's a, f- a few versions of that mm-hmm. with different characters. <laughs> and so yeah. it's not about that situation or that device or that magic. It's about the character going through it. And in the hands of another team of uh, writers and editors that may not have survived. And I'm glad that it did. I could see that. Yeah. I can see I... that. And, and reading through that exact part this time around, I mean, of course, there's that speculation, you know, in, in book between the Aes Sedai, you know, is what we're seeing in this Tarangriel, is this real? Of course, every woman who ever leaves that, you know, the arches comes out asking, was that real? And, and Shiriam has a bit of speculation to offer in that point. She says, I don't think it's real. And of course, as a reader at this point, you are also wondering, is this real? And going through this, like, all the way up until now, I had assumed that it was not real, it was just the, the Tirangriol utilizing Teleron Riyadh to read your fears and expose you to them in a controlled manner. However, this time around I realized that, as as we were just discussing with Egwene, she actually learned something going into this Tirangriol that we didn't know before, and that was the turning. She had we, yes. had we had never even heard of such a thing before this, and she learned it inside there. She went in there with no prior knowledge of this, uh, of this procedure, and came out knowing of course she had to ask shiriam for for confirmation and uh, that mm-hmm. did as as you said drew shape her her trial going forward but how did she gain that knowledge in there in the first place without knowing that as she went in do we have any speculation yeah. it, it the only way i can kind of uh justify that moment where Rand tells her they can turn me is that this uh, okay, so this like plays into something I'm going to get into a little later in the lore segment, okay. and this is the idea of like the worlds, the the parallel and perpendicular worlds, and the fact that Teleron Riyadh suffuses them all, okay. and that at some level in every reality there are certain truths that remain, and this is something that must be a truth that remains across the parallel perpendicular worlds and thus in the you know the unseen world that is between and among all of them and that you know so there is a a truth that you know these uh, constructs for lack of a better word can speak to people you know yeah. so she comes out of it with true knowledge despite mm-hmm. not informing it herself Okay, that's the best way I can kind of put it together with the knowledge I have as a fan, right? Yeah, it's worth it's worth thinking about in the future. Um, do we have anything more about Egwene that we want to discuss before we move on to somebody else, like uh, Randall Thor, for example? No, I'm good. Uh, I, yeah, let, let's go to Rand. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start us off then. You know, his chapters. In, in this one, as we were, you know, mentioning earlier, they're so scarce, they're so dark. We have Jordan interspersing points of view from Rand in this narrative, like or like like hors d'oeuvres. You know, every single one that we got had me craving more. Um, 
But most of my, my, my points about Rand here, we actually kind of did already briefly go over, and that was just my concern like with like the, the, the pace of his madness and how it accelerates up until this point. It didn't yeah. feel sustainable at the time to me, having like, having just, you know, begun the Dragon Reborn and seeing that there's still oh, at the at the moment there's still I think there were still seven books remaining. And there were still <laughs> three more, four more to be published in the future. But <clears throat> you know it, it we, we did kind of gov- cover that particular point a bit already i can see it being a really cool narrative tool right well it, but um, it's also how, we talked uh, we talked earlier about how it's uh, it's a good way of ratcheting up the tension you know not knowing if yes. he's crazy right because we're not in his head but also uh, as a narrative tool you just said it it's they are hors d'oeuvres that leave you wanting more you know you want <laughs> the main dish you want that and so as you are reading the other sections especially the parent chapters where they're chasing after him uh, you desperately want these characters to catch him and so you continue turning yeah. the page you keep wanting to find out how they're going to do it because yes. you want to catch up to him you want to know what's going on <laughs> with this guy um, and so yeah you don't know if he's crazy you want to get there uh, this was a great great tool that Robert Jordan put in place here Drew? Rand? Yeah and and so maybe my favorite thing about what Robert Jordan did with Rand in these segments is that you know, in these very occasional moments we get to see him, the tone, like the setting, they're all night scenes. Everything is darker. It's almost bordering on like uh-huh. horror. You know, you know, there this is this is Robert Jordan creeping into more horror fantasy territory than his normal kind of uh, you know, maybe it's intense action packed, but there's usually like a, an underlying uh, lightness to it, and at least thus far through you know two and a half books, it. But the Rand scenes here are very dark in tone, very intense. Have a lot of disturbing implications to them. You know the scene with him in Teleronriad where he meets Egwene, and we find out that Rand is being visited in his dreams with these doppelgangers who are trying to poison him, or or his father tries to plant a knife in his heart. You know, and and he's you know they're the shadow sending. Uh, uh, kind of the implication is like e- either like Elaine or or Egwene um, showed up at one point and tried to seduce him, and you know it's a it's a psychologically challenging aspect to the Wheel of Time that hasn't really come along before this. The closest I would say is is that moment in uh, the Great Hunt where they find the bodies of Changu and Nidao. Oh, that was. Dark, skinned yeah. and hanged, you know. Crimson scarecrows, and, rictus of pain. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, Jordan, my man. Yeah, so so it's just another way that Robert Jordan is pulling the reader along by you know, increasing the stakes, increasing the tension, and increasing the discomfort in the reader where you wanna find out, you wanna you wanna know that Rand is gonna be okay despite all of these crazy things he's encountering. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're definitely starting to see a lot more of these uh, straight-up, just, I guess, intimidating signs of Rand's effect on the pattern at this point, too. And I, I keep forgetting that oh, yeah. <laughs> both of the false dragons that were racking the world at this time, they just mysteriously, they were defeated under unlikely and exactly similar circumstances in battle, under the visions of Rand versus Baal Zaman in the sky. You know, the, the world 
finally has its dragon. And the, the, the pattern at this point is just basically going, move, bitch, get out the way, right? Like, <laughs> we don't have room for you anymore. We've got the OG. He's in the house. So I just yeah. I found that, that, that pretty cool. You like, and I read this book can... very differently. <laughs> Did we? That's uh, oh. okay. That's why oh, we have... I, no, I'm kidding. Go ahead, dude. I just didn't read it like a gangster. That's all. No, that's, that's fine. But <laughs> we bring everybody together to get, like I said, the flavor of life, the overall experience, right? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really, really, like I said, just intimidating to see all these things that are happening around Rand, involving Rand, that have nothing to do with Rand. Well, they have everything to do with yeah, Rand, but not the, not caused by Rand, and that's just you know. But it's it's the pattern, yeah. It's the pattern, you know, shaping events around him, and and not necessarily even near him, all across the world. Like this is, you know, uh, again, like back in our Eye of the World episode, we talked about, um, you know, the idea of the Forsaken being able to track Taviran, and and I, you know, made the point that at the time Balzman couldn't find Rand yeah. necessarily because. They weren't that strongly Taviran yet. Here is where we're seeing Rand finally manifesting this like pattern altering strength. Where he he goes through a town and the town goes mad. That was oh that's right, wasn't this for one. the time that he's there. And even when he's you know Yeah, it, it, the first time that you know he, he does that, you know, it's the weddings, right? And then the white cloaks come through and the white oh. cloaks all go insane. You know, half like half of them try to like start raping women in the streets, and the other half are trying to stop them. Some of them are trying to burn down the inn. Some of them rip off their cloaks and renounce the light, <laughs> and like you know, and ride off. And it's it's just utter madness. And even at the same time, that's just in Rand's vicinity. But the effects of him being Taviran are rippling all across the pattern and affecting far flung countries. And it's the, it, kind of like a, an important signifier for his character development that he's not actively doing this, but this is something that is a consequence of his bare existence. So it's something he's going to have to deal with moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else Rand concerning that, we're, uh, that we want to get out of the way? Now, we don't really have much of no. Rand at this point. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to discuss in part two, but at this point, I mean, I think I've oh, yeah. pretty much gone over everything that uh, that there is to go over concerning Rand. Um, Other than the fact that he uses Balefire for the first time on page? Ah, uh, yeah. Almost. Yeah. Well, that was, was that the first first time he didn't use it in... Uh, well, no, I guess he couldn't have used it at the end of the Eye of the World. What am I thinking? Was it... He, he did indeed. He used it for yeah. the first time on page. Was it more, uh, in Great Hunt that Moraine uses it on Darkhounds? Yeah, she does. Well, no, that, that is uh, coming up in That's, the second oh, half. Oh man! Oh spoil! Oh boy! Just... That's okay. We're, wait, we've already spoiled some <laughs> some bigger things in the future, right? Yeah, no, no we're, yeah. We're, we're not. I guess we. This is something that we really haven't said on episode yet, right here. Uh, as you know, per the the structure of the last episode so far in the, our Wheel of Time read through, um, we're not going to go haywire with, with spoilers for the future, but we're not shying away from them either, unless we have somebody on the podcast, a special guest who has not read the Wheel of Time. Craig, you are very familiar with the Wheel of Time. Ish. So we can discuss spoilers. No big deal. Yeah. We'll try to keep them in context. 
but go nuts. Dude. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it always makes me uncomfortable for somebody to say you're very familiar with the Wheel of Time when I'm sitting here staring at Drew. <laughs> well, there's a difference between very very familiar and Drew McCaffrey. There's there's still a, a very clear line to be drawn there, right? It's, like I would say I'm very oh. familiar with Wheel of Time. I'm not quite on Drew's level, but. <laughs> I know my stuff. Oh, gee whiz, guys. You're making me blush. Yeah, look, that's just the booze. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Calm another drink down for me there, man. I'm kind of going oh. a little stingy today but, myself. But, but yeah, no, th this was the first time on the page in the Wheel of Time that we see somebody use Balefire when Rand kills the Darkhound. So. Interesting. That Interesting. That's my final point about Rand. Uh, but I really want to talk about Matt Cawthon because... Cool. I mean, cool. this is the first time we can. We didn't never got oh, any points boy. of view about it before this. <laughs> well, I mean, we did talk about Matt in previous episodes, but we we didn't get any kind of in depth information about Matt. Uh, right. So, so can I yeah. can I kick this one off because I've got a question yeah. for you guys. Um, Sweet. This is this is another you know unpopular opinion time with Craig Hanks. Oh, ooh. Um, ooh. It, <laughs> I I like Matt. Okay, so my unpopular opinion is not that Matt is dumb or anything like that. So I like Matt. I like reading his chapters. I get it. All right. However, I I think he's somehow overrated. So he's cool, but he's okay. just not yeah, that yeah. cool. Uh, or his chapters aren't that great. And I feel like his. His story throughout the entirety of the Wheel of Time is kind of, um, it's really summed up well in the fight with Galad and Gowan, right? So if I can summarize a little bit, he's taken yeah, over the yeah, tower it, and they, they got a helium of the, the link that he has with the dagger hilted ruby, or ruby hilted dagger, what? Oh man, <laughs> I'm not even the one drinking on this episode. Dagger uh, hilted ruby. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it depends on which end you hit the other guy with, right? Uh, so he <laughs> he gets uh, so he gets cured of that connection, and it's this intense scene. And then he's kind of convalescing, and the first thing he does after he's healed is he goes and he grabs a quarterstaff and whips Galad and Gowan out in the training yard. And it's a cool scene; it's very <laughs> exciting and all this. Um, and when you you know you go on Reddit or you go you go to Jordan Con or you go to wherever that Wheel of Time fans congregate, and you say, "What are the best scenes in the whole series and and a few people will throw out uh you know the cleansing of the of Sidene or the killing what's the guy in book 14 whatever the land murders um do my wells or oh, yeah do my wells right but then so many people will the say oh yeah, yeah when when uh matt yeah, whips gallet and gawan and gawan and i'm like I'm, I'm like, it was great. Please don't misunderstand me. It's great. It's fun. I like the scene quite a lot, but I've never understood. Is it is it kind of a group think kind of thing where people are all just uh, following each other? I don't know. Um, where did this come from? And do you guys feel like it's merited that that scene is so great? So, Go ahead, Drew. I'll let you answer that one first. So I think where a lot of this the love of this scene comes from and part of the reason that it's not universally beloved but for the people who think of it it is as you said craig like a top scene in the series is that for the uh the people who read this book as perhaps young teenagers the kind of people who are reading the wheel of time as 13 14 year olds right are generally speaking probably not going to be 
football players or hockey players or, you know, basketball, like they're not the jocks. And in this scene, Galad and Gawain, in a lot of ways, stand in for the jocks. And this is a, a wish fulfillment scene. I guess. It is essentially, it is, it is a time where the underdog takes on the supremely overconfident jocks that everybody around is adoring of. You have, you know, the, the, the cliques, the Aes Sedai and the Accepted standing there drooling over Galad, you know, okay. and then yeah. Matt is, is the character that as, you know, say a 14 year old, maybe awkward, maybe, you know, you're not, you're, you're introverted. You, you don't love social settings, whatever. You can step into his shoes and beat up the jock. So, and I think that's why so many people yeah, love Yeah, that's this. a really good explanation. That, All right, I buy I it. I find that so fascinating that you consider Gawain and Galad to be the jocks. And I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. They're not They're not ever rude, which is something I always, you know, consider. Uh, oh, that I always see in, oh, that man. I, in people that I consider jocks. What? Gal, uh, <laughs> Wait, like, okay, you they're, and I they're had dismissive. a different experience. Because, like, yeah, I mean, the, the... I consider jocks to be rude. And Galad and Gawain <laughs> haven't been outright rude until he challenged them and then they were very insultingly dismissive i will admit that right. definitely of course well, and, I, I want to hear what craig was was saying oh here. no i oh, just oh, sorry did i cut you off did one you? one of the uh one of my abiding memories from high school that was you know that was a years ago uh was that the popular kids the jocks and the whatever they were always outwardly nice always well, and it okay, was, yeah. you know, yeah. it was always yeah. kind of that okay. undercurrent of dickishness that uh, that you detected. <laughs> okay, okay. No, you, you that, got me with that, that one. That is exactly my experience as well. Uh, and I will say, like, I also, like, I had a little bit of that experience reading The Wheel of Time. I will admit, you know, like, I picked up these books when I was 11 years old, about to turn 12. You know, I was obsessively rereading them through my teens. And I was, in a lot of ways, you know, like... A nerd, right? You know, I weren't we? Uh, I was kind of a late bloomer, right? You know, like I was short and scrawny, skinny kid. But at the same time, I had like kind of a, a maybe different high school experience because I was like a varsity hockey player, and you know, I I had friends, like good friends, in some of the more like jock groups in high school. But I wasn't ever. Part oh, of those oh yeah, yeah. I, oh, sure. I, uh, yeah, Drew, you yeah. were you weren't one of those jocks. No, no, no. <laughs> you were a cool jock. <laughs> yeah, he was a nice one. <laughs> no, well, that's my point. Is like I wasn't a jock at all. Like I mostly hung out with but like what a jock the ever gaming club being a jock, kids. Though. And no jock sees himself as being a well, jock. I, do they? Oh just, yeah, I'm just, no. I'm just no. fucking with you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pulling your leg over here. Trust me, like, there were guys I grew up playing with who were like, their identity was, mm. I am a hockey player. Yeah. That was their whole identity. Like, there were hockey players listened to certain kinds of music. Hockey players had certain kind of hairstyles. Like, it, the hockey flow was a thing. Like, like, no joke, no joke, Google this. Every year, the Minnesota High School State Tournament, there is an all-hair team voted on and selected how the f I, how the hell did we arrive like, on hockey <laughs> <laughs> i know we're going kind of far afield but like that is that's what i mean about like 
the identity of a jock. Sure. And so that's like as a as a wheel of time reader, like, you know, growing up, many, many people could see Matt as like a stand in an idealized stand in a you know a Mary Sue, so to speak, for themselves. I'm not saying Matt is an idealized stand in for Robert Jordan because you know he I mean that guy was no, I amazing. Think... I don't think he had any issues with like his yeah. But but in that scene specifically, Matt was that stand in that allowed people to have this moment of uh, um, satisfaction seeing the jocks quote so to speak taken down a wrong or no I think I think you actually just nailed it now that I now that I consider it you know think about contextually speaking just the manner in which Matt is described in this book I mean he's sickly he's weak he's he's you know he's uh, he's emaciated at this point he's not very strong like he is dismissed <laughs> he is kind of treated like I don't know furniture more than anything else um, yeah. And I, it, when you when you mentioned Drew, like the, the clicks that the eyes that I form, you know, as they're all watching Galad and Gawain, specifically Galad, you know, work the forms in his sword. I, as a thirteen year old boy, I was reading that, and I absolutely was going, "You, well, you word that I'm not going <laughs> to say." Like you, yeah. <laughs> no. I, I now that you mention it, and it was kind of like a like a little bit of 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 pseudo like fan service, wasn't it? Just tossing Matt in there, giving him a, yeah. a quarter staff, and watching him just you know. Ping, ping, bowls. Didn't he, didn't he consider it uh, like, like going down? I think he described Gowan going down like pins in a game of bowls or something like that. That might be a future in, in, uh, going on in the future. Oh, no, that might have actually been in the Lord, in Lord of Chaos. Matt does that to somebody. Hold on. We'll, we'll bring that up. Yeah, I will no, say that's, that's, that's not probably. in this scene. But One, one complaint like uh, that I do have with this scene, that. Um, and, and like I said, I do enjoy this scene. I think it's a lot of fun, uh, but... You know, as long as you guys are cool talking a little bit of spoiler stuff uh, in it. book four, yeah, yeah, Matt is going to go into Ruidion. He's going to go meet. I can't remember. Is it the Eelfin or the Aelfin or whoever gives him the uh, Shand- uh, in Ashandari. in Ruidion? It's the Eelfin. Okay, yeah, so he goes Eelfin in there, in and he gets this uh, this badass weapon. It's the staff with uh, you know oh, short yeah. swords on both the, ends and whatnot. The blade on the end. And he and Rand, on their way out of Ruidion, are immediately set upon by these dust creatures. And they're running around, yep. whipping their weapons through them. And it's described in that scene that uh, that Matt seemed to already know how to use this weapon. And it's kind of this foreshadowing that he's mm-hmm. got these memories of the old generals in his head and all this stuff. Uh, and it's a great scene, but it is slightly undercut by this... Because it would have been even better, I think, if Matt had been kind of a, you know, a worthless weapons know-nothing, right? He doesn't know how to wield anything. Oh. He doesn't know how to fight. Suddenly he comes out of the his experience with the Eelfin, and he is a badass with this uh, Shandarai thing. Uh, that would have been a little Ooh, bit... Interesting. Uh, you know, a little bit different i guess and you know people can debate about whether it would have been better i'm not entirely sure but i think it might be a little bit undercut by this scene hmm. i had never considered that before but i, I see point. what you're going yeah. at there yeah. yeah uh but i want to kind of take this as a, a little bit of a leaping off point as far as matt's memories go uh we get a full-on italicized memory scene from matt in this book yep 
And, uh, in, in fact, it's, like, literally the first point of view we get for him. And it is him fighting at the Terrandrel along, you know, a- along with the remnants of Manethrin in their last stand. And I want to address perhaps a, a, a misconception that a lot of fandom has. Ooh, okay. And, and, <laughs> Professor and there's a reason for house. it. there's a reason for it because in the first couple of books there are a lot of things about Matt that point toward like Amon right Mm. the last king of Manethrin but a lot of people see this scene as oh this is Matt having his memory of Amon but it's not Amon in this scene I didn't get that Amon died at Emmons Field that's that's why why it's it's called Emmons Field Field. it was originally Amon's field, and he died with the band of the red hand around him. This memory Matt has is of an unnamed captain of the heart guard, not the band of the red hand. And this is an elite cavalry unit, you know, in the Manethrin military. But what this is, as we get, is the continuation of Matt's soul. The gambler, with a capital G. We have Arthur Hawkwing when when oh, yeah, he the heroes are summoned at the end of the Great Hunt. Yeah. He addresses Matt as gambler, and this is something you know through quotes from Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson you know, over the years. There is a specific soul that is spun out again and again and again. Not a hero of the Horn, but it is a a like a special soul called yeah. the gambler that has inherent luck. Even the Eelfin call him gambler. And, go son of battles. Go trickster. Go gambler. Go right. Exactly, yeah. And uh, and so, Matt's Taviran, um, you know, no, I'll, I'll just, like, let that sit, and okay. I'll address the Taviran stuff uh, in, in the lore section at the end of this episode. Okay. But I, I just want to talk about that. Matt is not necessarily, like, Amon Reborn. He is, he does have the old blood, for sure, from Manethrin. You know, he's, he's got the old tongue coming out, all of that. But this memory is not from Amon, it's from a an anonymous captain of the heart guard, this elite cavalry unit. Sure. You know, something that struck me before we get too far off course, before we, we leave our discussion with Matt, I did want to say that I noticed something about Matt that I found sep- kind of separates him from other characters in my head, with the exception of Nynaeve, who strikes me in this same way. Um, and oh. that's that in, in with Matt in the start of his narrative, he is already perfectly Matt. Uh, and I went on to say in my, in my notes here, you know, Jordan went on to this character, I think, knowing that voice already, knowing it and employing it so well from his uh, written internal dialogue, his his dry cynicism, his idle fancies. Matram Cawthon in book three still feels like, well, okay, not the Matt Cawthon from the Sanderson books. Well, that's a whole other discussion for, for later. <laughs> but he does still feel like the Matt Cawthon that we see for the rest of the series as it was written by Jordan. Like, that character, that voice, remains very consistent to me. And that's something that I found, like, with Nynaeve as well. That voice remains very consistent. With characters like yeah. Rand, with Perrin, he clearly had a very well, a very good groundwork laid. He, he clearly knew where he wanted them to go. But I, I don't feel like they read as perfectly themselves as Matt does right from the get-go. And I think, okay, maybe that could be because we didn't get any of Matt until book three. And by then, Jordan yeah. was already, you know, at a, he was already at a gallop, narratively speaking. 
Um, but I just wanted to give uh, give that a shout out. You know, like Matt still feels immediately from page one, from the first sentence, from when he first opens his eyes after the healing. It's he's so so Matt. What about you guys? How do you feel? I think you're absolutely right. I'm sure that comes from just like you said. He'd already written two books, even if he didn't. Yeah, so he was very even if he didn't do any uh, point of view stuff for Matt. He knew the character. Um, he'd written his dialogue at least, and so he knew exactly who he was. Yeah, Drew. Yeah, definitely. Matt still feels like Matt I, I'm, until a certain point. Um, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, like these early Matt chapters, uh, basically his time in the tower and then in Tarvalon, uh, and then up until he gets on uh, the first ship, uh, that is like some of the most quintessentially Matt. Very I think, poignantly, uh, would you say? Yeah, that we get in the series. So, I, uh, uh, yeah, I'm right there I with you. I do like bud. that uh, <laughs> because of who his character is, and as you say, how well drawn and what an individual he is, and uh, how well we know him right away. It's awesome to have him at the beginning of this book in Tarvalin because up till now we've seen some White Tower stuff and we've seen some of their machinations and the the lies or the half-truths and the all this stuff, the shady dealings of the Aes Sedai, and it takes a character like Matt coming in uh, to show you just kind of how ridiculous it yeah. is. You know, he's the guy to, that comes to in... To filter and, it a little differently. And he just laughs yeah. at him and says, no, you're all ridiculous. You're ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and I'm out of here. The second I can get up out of this bed, I'm out of here because I don't want to deal Which with it. Which kind of frustrated me I mean, about Matt. Just the fact that he was so ready to leap out of bed when he could barely stand up. It's like, dude, use your use three of your brain cells. I know you've got them <laughs> available. Come on, dude. Um, anyway, but I think from, you know, a, you know, from a reader's perspective, the, at least from this reader's perspective, and I know maybe a couple other people I've talked to, uh, the White Tower... Uh, whatever its faults are you are as a reader in awe of it uh, and it's this untouchable center of power and wonder and all this stuff and you have a, a, a character like matt come in and he kind of just lifts that veil off of tarval and, and says now it, it yeah for yeah. all of its wonders and powers and all that it's still just kind of a collection of ninnies at the end <laughs> you <laughs> so know craig i uh I, I have to say, the moment you said the word machinations, oh, no. immediately, <laughs> I just thought, eh, machinations. <laughs> Is that a parody of the Macarena? Yeah. Uh, it was something that came God. up on our episodes, our, our Wheel of Time episodes. It was... Uh, was it? Yeah, that's oh, got to go on a t-shirt at some point, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. We're going to we're gonna have to um, tell Craig all about our uh, Deus Ex Domon. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's that's the nickname for bail domon because every time he shows up in the series he's he's there to be like an easy makes out sense. for whoever yeah, needs yeah, it makes sense yeah. to me. it's already <laughs> happened more than once at this point and it's still not over yep oh yeah <laughs> I, I just i, I want to also uh, oh go ahead drew well i was gonna say uh, unless we're we have anything more about matt we should move on with our characters just one we're, we're getting awesome scene pretty deep in point. in here yeah i just want to say i got a definite kick out of the one-on-one -on -one between matt and the amerlin immediately following his healing. She straight up tells him what she wants to use him for, and he, you know, understandably freaks out a bit. He's blood and ashes! Blood and bloody ashes! And then Swan <laughs> just calmly looks at him, and she puts her, I think she puts her chin on her knuckles, and she says, would you prefer the alternative? 
And he takes a moment to think about it, and he just goes, <laughs> yeah. oh, you want me to blow the horn? I'll blow the horn. I never said I would not blow the horn, did I? You know, I just, yeah. <laughs> you know, we get such a good, uh, such a good feel for the character of Matt Coffin just in that one exchange. I loved it. So that's everything I wanted to say about Matt. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. And I, I'll, I'll add one more thing. There's a line in there that I think absolutely sums up Matt's character when he says, I am not a hero, but I will do what I have to do. Sure. And Swan replies and says, most heroes say that. Yeah. Most pe- most heroes are just people doing what they need to do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, who are we going to so, talk about next? I, I think we need to talk about Perrin because okay. he's our other uh, major, major point of view, of view yeah. character. I will say I don't have a whole lot to discuss about Perrin. Actually, I didn't yet. write anything down about Perrin, so, but I could still Ooh. give you know impressions. As long, Ooh. as long as we get to Moiraine, that's all, that's all I'm. That's, that's my only oh, wish. Oh, all right. Of course, Craig wants to talk about Warren. <laughs> if I if Ooh. no, we'll we'll get to her in just a sec. Yeah, yeah, we will. But but with Perrin, you know, most of the the first half of this book, his character arc is just him dealing with the wolves, and then being a vehicle for us to follow the chase after Rand. So he doesn't have like a, a super complex you know, presence on the page in the first half of this book. We get a couple of really uh, powerful scenes, I admit. You know, we have, uh, you know, when the, the Trollocs attack the the camp in the mountains, and and we have that really ominous, the twisted ones come, brother. Uh. Twisted ones come, you know. But the, the main scene for, um, uh, for Perrin here is meeting Noam. Hmm. Because that is a, a formative moment for Perrin's entire like psychology going forward. Is that he has now seen somebody who has utterly given themselves over to the wolf. And Perrin now is afraid of that. And he sees that as something that could happen involuntarily. So that's going to be a giant internal conflict going forward for a lot of yeah. this series. <laughs> You know, and it all starts, and, right and it's here. all because of this one scene. You know, like because he, the first wolf brother he meets is Elias, who's perfectly normal, well, well, I mean, ish, mostly not well normal, adjusted. You know, he's like adjusted, he's a little, yes. he's a little reclusive, but but he's not like a wild animal. You know, he's uh, he's found his balance. He's in control of his humanity. Mm-hmm. So. But but Perrin having Elias as his first, you know, as his introduction to wolf brotherhood, um, it's easy for him to forget about that when he stumbles over something scarier and more unknown, and that's going to inform him going forward. And that I think is maybe more than any other moment in this whole book, and and that's like a pretty I know pretty big statement for me to make because there are a couple of pretty key moments for <laughs> parents contentious book. uh i think it is the most important moment in the dragon reborn for uh what is this not the book where he meets fail yes it is the book so, where he yeah because like for the entire rest of the series and this is uh kind of my uh rant about parent 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 is uh, a great character, or at least he's a 
he's a very well written character in that Jordan never lost sight of who Perrin is. Perrin is relentlessly uh, bullheaded and not clever and single-minded <laughs> and all this stuff. He he's not Matt. He's not Rand. He's not Moraine. He's not no. any of these people. He's very distinct. He is, and uh, and Jordan never lost sight of that, and so he never ended up accidentally writing Perrin to be cleverer or more interesting than he actually is, and that's to his credit. But on the other hand, it can make him just a chore to read sometimes. Yeah. And this isn't so much a problem in this book, I don't think. I think it comes into play later. But it's those two. I, I would point to two events. It's meeting Fayil uh, and uh, and meeting... What's, what's his name? The wolf guy? Noam. Noam? Elias? No, no, Noam. Uh, oh, oh, Noam. In yeah, this one. Those, in this those one. two events become the things to which he constantly refers throughout the rest of the series yeah. and so where some people get you know they they kind of raise their eyebrows or snicker a little bit at all the braid tugging <laughs> or the arm folding or whatever my thing is like my abiding memory of Perrin is like shut up about noam shut up about fail just thank you thank just you have another thought you know? thank you so much i've been waiting for somebody to properly articulate exactly how i feel about Perrin being such a crybaby <laughs> bitch for the rest of the series all right now and i'm really glad that you brought up oh my gosh uh this exact point because this is something i noticed about Perrin's character in this book too where he is as as a person not just mentally speaking but literally geographically speaking Perrin's narrative over the entirety of the wheel of time gets kind of a full circle thing happening here with his meeting of Noam you know because in Towers of Midnight and this is a book that I loved but I found the biggest complaint I had about Towers of Midnight was how much Perrin it had in it because at that point I wasn't a huge Perrin fan and it does come full circle because I mean the events everything that happens in book 13 kind of focus on this exact same stretch of land and this is they're yeah. currently in Gildan, correct this is where he found noam yes. on the johanna road or whatever they are in Gildan. Yep. so you know i just i did want to to bring that to the forefront here and say i appreciated going into it this time i know where parents going to end up and i know how everything that's happening in this location in Gildan, everything that's happening to parent in the first half of the dragon reborn is going to eventually have a full circle and it's all going to come back and have not it's not going to end but it's going to have an ending back in the same spot so i found that pretty cool yeah yeah um so shall we move on to moiraine yes. then yes because i know let's, craig is uh, chomping at the bit uh, here uh, look hey let's give craig his chance uh no I, I i guess i'll just kick this off by saying that if Egwene and i are having a torrid love affair then it's probably Moraine that I'm stepping out on because, uh, yeah, I... uh... <laughs> really, you are more of an Egwene fanboy than Moraine. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Uh, Egwene is just a dalliance. Moraine is my one true love. Okay, okay, <laughs> good. Because this is something that I wanted to ask you, especially you, Drew, earlier too. Um, but you oh. know, with our special guest, one of whom was Drew's wife, I didn't consider it totally appropriate to ask him this at the time. <laughs> Sorry, Lauren. But come on, Warren, <laughs> biggest like teenage fantasy crush ever. Uh, I'm 33 years old, uh, and no, but like you, I'm sure you discovered her <laughs> as a teenage. Oh, how actually? I should have asked no, you that. Right. When did you start reading? Uh, I time? didn't start reading until I was 27. 
So. Well, 27-year-old Craig and 13-year-old Rob agreed on a lot of things, my friend, <laughs> let me tell you. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm not loving what you're saying about me here. That's, uh, that's just cruel. No. <laughs> so, but, well, no, I, you have to insult. I right? will but, tell you, but, though, Okay, with I, all of that, with all of my Moraine love out of the way, I, I do suspect that this book is where a lot of people get the most ammunition for their distaste for Moiraine. Because I know there's a lot of it In out this there. this book. Sure. Um, but the way that she mishandles Rand, the way that she kind of uh, goes w- with that oh, whole man. situation at the beginning of the book, uh, yep. I think I, I can understand yep. why people don't like her. I that's For me, that's one of the things that actually makes her a really great character is that she is far from infallible, right? Um but anyway, I wanted to ask you guys about that, about that kind of the fandom's love and hate for Moraine um, and where that comes from and where you feel like she is in this book. So Drew, I'll I, let you tackle that one first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I fall along a spectrum with Moraine. I do not understand the unabashed love for Moiraine that a lot of people have. I also absolutely Ew. don't understand the hate people have for her. I, I think she gets uh, almost too much credit for being brought back at the end of the series. Because uh, like people love her so, so, so ardently. And she's not even there for like half the friggin' yeah, series. Moiraine, and dude. a lot of what she does isn't all that impressive to me. She has her moments, but early on especially, she is um, a little too caught up in Aes Sedai-ness. And while she does have her moment of realization in a couple of books here, and, you know, is willing to compromise for the first time, I like that's a great character growth moment. I I think that's awesome. I I like Moiraine, but I don't love her the way some people do. You know, it's it, like I I oh let, let me let me give you a character that I like Moiraine on a similar level to. Somebody like okay. Davram Bashir. What? What? Yeah. What the hell did you just say, boy? No, I, 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 like, I don't I, have I, anything against Avram Bashir. I just think it's an odd comparison. Nor do I. Well, well so that's oh, what I mean. I mean. I, like, I, I like her. I think she did some really important things, and I think Davram Bashir did some really important things, and I, like, I don't. It doesn't go beyond that for me. And so, like, Rob, when you're talking about like you know this teenage crush, like. That was I never yeah. had a crush on Moiraine. Never ever. What? The characters I had crushes on in this the series fuck is wrong were with you? Elaine and Avienda. Okay, Elaine and Avienda, I can see. Yes, but they weren't like Moiraine level. Oh. Damn, dude. <laughs> God, okay. Like Avienda, like especially like like Avienda. Man. <laughs> See, for, with me, with Moiraine, it was, I guess, just her position of power, her serenity, you know, like her, her, how small she is of stature, but how she big, how, how she big, how, how large she is. <laughs> yeah, that's, but that's vision. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, I, uh, 
I just Moiraine. I I just Moiraine. I, so I, I will also put this out there. Part of it comes from like my uh, what the hell? proclivities, okay. like the the kind of girls I'm attracted to. I'm six foot four. Oh sure. Moiraine is super short. She's like five foot like, on the dot, right? Yeah, like I'm I'm not into that. When I hear like Avienda's like almost like taller than Matt, I'm like, oh yeah, here we go, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I can see that. So, but in Brigitte as well. But. So let me uh, let me riff on something you said. It, uh, you said Drew that she just doesn't she doesn't do that much that's 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 that impressive I, and all that's, that. Um, I, that's that's where I went. A what? debatable point no. well, for sure, but. My thing is, look, if you want to understand true love, Drew, if you really want to understand it, yeah, Drew. it's not about like, you know, okay, look, I've got kids, and so I am- Listen to what this man I'm says. I'm intimately familiar with uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, and if you ever watch those, like the end of <laughs> the end of every episode of Thomas the Tank Engine, somebody saves the day, and then the, whatever the mayor, got, uh, Sir Topham Hat, comes and says- Congratulations, you were a very useful engine. And that's like the measure of love <laughs> in Thomas the Tank Engine. It always drives me crazy. Like, oh, because they they performed some act, now they're worthy of your love. You know, my, my thing with Moraine is that uh, I do like her personality. And every once in a while, she lets that Aes Sedai serenity slip. And, and her natural yes. personality comes out. And it's interesting yes. and wonderful. Um, like shaking and, and excitement what, over here. And yeah. she acts throughout the first several books of the series as a great window into what it means to be an Aes Sedai. And so you get to see nothing but that kind of Aes Sedai calm and serenity, the power that she has right. uh, as she's guiding the, the youngins through book one. And then as the series progresses <laughs> and she more often lets that mask slip, uh, then you kind of, as a reader, it's giving you a chance to see through her what the Aes Sedai really are. No, they are individuals, and they do have personalities, uh, and they do uh, act in certain ways as individuals. And so she is not only somebody that I like uh, you know, personal, personally, but she's also a great device that Robert Jordan uses to give us a window into the Aes Sedai. No, you're absolutely right. Like, for the majority yeah. of the series, and this is something that we, we had discussed earlier in our, uh, the, especially in the Great Hunt episode, I think it was, I brought this up. So, uh, basically, with, with Moiraine here, you're absolutely right. She's kind of held up as, like, the quintessential, the, 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 the model Aes Sedai. And not counting all of the incredible feats that she does. She kills one of the Forsaken. She she finds not only the Dragon Reborn, but the future Amelin She is well. a like, very is, useful engine. She is uh, uh, just a, <laughs> a, a phenomenally, yeah, okay, yeah, useful narrative tool. Absolutely, she is wonderful. But something I had said about Moiraine in earlier episodes was, especially with her relationship with Lan, and what I want to say about that is, she and Lan represent to me, despite the fact that there is absolutely no hint of any kind of any kind of romantic interest between the two. She and Lan are still to me kind of like the ultimate fantasy power couple, just because of those 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 jaw-dropping moments of awesome that we get when we see Moiraine and Lan fighting back to back. You know, we see Moiraine throwing balls of fire. We see Lan carving out, you know, Trollocs, Trolloc flesh in a wall around her. I mean, like those two together just represent to me everything about the the male and the women uh, the, the men and the women of the Age of Legends and how this whole overarching theme throughout the series of men and women working together, you know, being synergetic in outcome and how they have 
like uh, they, they just they work to create something more than the sum of their parts. And with Moiraine, she just exemplifies that again and again. Like she is to me like the perfect Aes Sedai. See, I I do not disagree with anything you guys said there, and I, in in fact, I very much agree with with what you said. Uh, but I just don't have the love for her character ah. that like okay, that's like, fine. No, you know, to, to me, she just doesn't have the screen time. Like, there's not enough of Moiraine in this series for me to say like she's my. Bay. Like, <laughs> okay, look, look, look. Say bay? None of us, what? none of us are young enough to use that word. Oh my goodness, <laughs> Andrew McCaffrey. But what about the scene where? Okay, take the scene where Moiraine joins Perrin and Loyal in catching fish from that stream or the pond or whatever. Did you not just oh, yeah, fall in gonna... love with her in that scene? No. No. Like I love how she screwed with their heads by asking for advice first oh no it was and great then she just but i'm not crushes like... their hopes and dreams and there's that image of her actually like wrestling with that big wriggling five pound fish and she's laughing in delight you know like i was just like ah oh, this woman's awesome she's awesome <laughs> there's you know what rob there's no arguing with bad taste so right yeah. <laughs> i get the well, feeling you're making I'll, fun I'll, of me here hold on a sec back up no just kidding no no <laughs> i'll i'll give you guys your your warren love uh i I'm, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to say that she's not a, a character that people can latch on to. Yeah. She just didn't sure, do it sure, for sure. me. But I do get people's frustration this with is... with her complete lack of transparency yeah. in this book. Like, come on. Like, tell, give, give them something to go on. She's Why does she have to carry on so many secrets? Why is it on such a need-to-know basis with everything around Moiraine? That, that's one complaint that I guess I'll balance out my Moiraine love with. She's on a yeah. journey, okay? She's yeah. on a journey. She's going to keep learning. <laughs> yeah. You'll talk more about yeah, this in is. book five, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. There'll be lots <laughs> in book five to discuss, yep. But, uh, yeah, so as far as uh, characters, is there anybody else we want to talk about before we move into kind of the lower element of this? I just wanted to give a shout-out to Pedro Nile. I love that guy. In the prologue, oh, my God. The, the experience that we've had up to this point of the majority of the White Cloaks thus far, I remember being incredibly surprised that their Lord Captain Commander was such a calm, reasonable, clever old man with a mind like a knife. I mean, it was awesome. Everything about that prologue was superb. The description of the banners on the walls from you know enemies defeated in battle. S such a neat way to present like another of our five great captains. The sunburst in the floor and the unimaginable wealth that he just doesn't even deign to notice i just i really really got a kick out of uh not a kick but i just really found it found him i was kind of reverent i suppose just reading Pedron niles that's chapters. really I mean, interesting just, it, it was the, awesome the way you describe that and the way you describe feeling about it because i and look i don't know i'm sure one of the two of you could uh educate me on this but i don't know robert jordan's religious leanings i don't know how he felt about organized religion and that sort of thing um, but I know that this description of the White Cloaks is the way that a lot of people view organized religion. And if we if we sure. use the Catholic Church, for instance, as a stand-in, but you could use uh, you could use a lot of Protestant churches um, as well. You know, a few other organizations that I won't name, uh, but they see it as a few clever old men who kind of 
are able to use the the slavering masses of zealots at at their command to try to take over the world, right? <coughs> Br. Yeah. And so yeah. So the way that he is, that Pedro Nile is drawn, seems very much in that vein of like you, every white cloak that we've come across has been this crazy zealot who's ready to you know burn witches at the stake at the you know at the drop of a hat. And now Pedro Nile is like, oh, yes, exactly. I'm able to use these tools to the best of my advantage. And so I, I wonder <laughs> if there's some sort of uh, editorializing going on and, you know, what this says about the way Jordan views organized religion. Jordan, uh, so, true? Yeah. Uh, Robert Jordan was a devout Christian. Uh, as, uh, as I have read, he, he was, like, kind of a guy who, like, received communion weekly and he was also a Mason, a Freemason. Um, so that I didn't know. Yeah, uh, he, I will also say, was definitely drawing a parallel with the White Cloaks to religious zealotry. Uh, that's that's something I, I think, yeah. Craig, you're you're spot on with. Um, yeah, that can't be argued. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know if necessarily he was trying to make an argument against organized religion as a like maybe a just an observation, but but more more of a yeah an observation on what happens when organized religion exceeds its bounds. Sure, when you have you know like you said like burning witches <laughs> at the stake, you know like like a Puritan puritanical or, or like a Spanish Inquisition. That's the the really popular comparison made with the white cloaks um but but robert jordan was a christian so i don't think he was like implicitly arguing against his own faith right 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 no, no yeah and it's uh, i i wasn't I, making an argument that he was i just uh, was wondering out loud oh okay yeah 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 inking uh, oh, as far as oh no Nile. you didn't do that oh. all right i'm out of here <laughs> yeah i was there it's it great to, mike drop this is it's great to be on the show with you guys i can't do this anymore yeah oh uh, yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but no. uh, as far as pedro nile goes though um rob it's funny because like you you brought up like yeah, how much Warhol. like he's a he's kind of a you know like an impressive figure yeah and i had that impression a lot, you know, over the years as I've read this book over and over and over again. And, you know, maybe, again, like, as I've said, I haven't touched The Dragon Reborn in four years. You know, the majority of my rereads were a decade ago. Oh, yeah. I'm a very different person now than I was as, like, a, you know, a teenager in high school and, and going into college. You know, I, I'm 29, I'm an adult, professional, you know, I'm married, I have a a very different worldview. And the thing now that stood out to me with Pedro Nile was how he comes across. This is another prime example of the unreliable narrator. With yes. Jordan. He comes across so as up, yeah. so thoroughly in control. And yet as you read through and then fame comes in <laughs> and you realize all of this thinking and scheming and planning has been informed and twisted by Pat and Fane. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this guy who's like so formidable and, and competent is totally undermined. 
Yeah, I got, he's corrupted. I got exactly that impression coming out of it this time because reading that that chapter, I was like, oh yeah, Pedro Nile, we still have him. He's still alive. He uh, spoilers for the future. Uh oh, and we're going forward, and I just like. <laughs> I remember being so impressed, just like you said, so impressed with this guy as I was reading this chapter. And then Padden Fane comes in, or Deeth, Wormwood comes in. And I and I went to myself, I went, oh, that's right, he's already with the Children of the Light. That's immediately following Toman Head. For some reason, you know, or Deeth with the Children of the Light, I keep thinking in the Shadow Rising. I, I keep forgetting that he's already oh, with yeah, Pedro yeah, Nile yeah. this early on into the narrative. But I do my last point about Pedro Niles. I just wanted to give it like I just wanted to point out how awesome and satisfying it was to see him call out Child Bayar on his bullshit. It was awesome. He yeah, says he yeah, says to yeah. Child Bayar, you know, a few weeks gone, I was receiving reports from you that Jeffrey Bornhold was a servant of the Dark One because he moved soldiers onto Toman Head against your orders. His voice became low, dangerously soft. Do you now mean yeah. me to believe that Bornhold, as a dark friend, led a thousand of the children to their deaths fighting other dark friends? Ah, uh, so satisfying. I was just like, eat it, Bayar, eat it! That's what you get. Oh, that was Keridin, not not Bayar. What? That was Keridin? I thought that was Bayar. Oh, you're right. Jaiku, yeah, that's right. Nope, yep. good call. Good call. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Pedro Nile, but, so, badass. Um, unless we have more, more about Pedro Nile... I, I think this is a really no, good bridge on. into lore stuff. Because that scene yes. carries on into a Jakeem Carradine point of view. Where he returns to his quarters and a Murdral confronts him. And <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. So I don't know like how common knowledge this is or not, but that Murdral chuckles. No. That Murdral laughs. That Murdral no, is Shidar Haran 1.0. No way. But Murdral do have humor. You're absolutely. This is confirmed. No. This is confirmed. Oh. The Murdral that damn. spoke and ordered Jakeem Carradine in the Fortress of the Light at the beginning of the Dragon Reborn is is like a proto Shidar Haran. Oh, okay. Well. See, I have a, I have an issue with with the justification of that though. Like I I fully accept that it's confirmed and that it's actually canon. It's a thing, but the fact that the mm -hmm. Murdral laughs, that it has a sense of humor, that it it seems a little more personal. I, I mean, we know for a fact that Murdral do have a sense of humor, don't we? No, go ahead. Uh, we'll revisit this conversation during the Demandred uh, prologue in Lord of Chaos, oh. when Shadar Haran laughs at him and he goes, "What the hell." A Murdral with a sense of humor. Okay, maybe it's not a sense of humor they have. But what's with all this, you know, talk about handing somebody to the Murdral, like the women to the Murdral, because the Murdral have their fun. I guess that's not a humor thing, though. Murdra oh, that is not a no, humor thing No, I guess now that all, I think about a... it, that is not a fun... No, never mind. Nope. Okay, let's backtrack there. Just because Murdral yeah. can be evil perverts doesn't mean that they have a sense of humor, now that I think on it. Nope. Yeah, no, you're, you're in the hole. We're yeah. just going to bury you and move on. <laughs> I'm gonna just keep digging yeah. this way. So, so that's lore point number one. But now we're gonna go crazy with the lore. Okay. Oh, are you let's ready go for crazy this? With lore. I'm so ready. Drew. We are gonna talk about parallel worlds and perpendicular worlds. Oh, okay, cool. So we know from the Great Hunt with the mirror worlds, right? <laughs> the, the worlds of what might have been. 
these are see worlds that to exist. Get myself into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you there, buddy. These are worlds that exist parallel to the Multiverse real world, kind of so stuff, to speak. Right? Yes, exactly. And uh, and as you get further away from what actually happened, the worlds become paler, more insubstantial, harder to to get to. But they are all, all these parallel worlds within the realm of possibility. So these parallel worlds are not just mirror worlds like we see through the portal stones. The universe, the world, the Ogier are from is a parallel world. The world the Aelfin and the Eelfin is from is a parallel world. Oh, okay, okay. Yep. They may have different laws of physics. They may have different laws of magic, so to speak. But they are reasonably possible enough that they exist. And that not only do they exist, but people from the real world can achieve travel to them. Now, as we have the scene with Varen talking to Egwene here, when she's like doing her like preface to Teleronriad, she draws the parallel lines, and then she draws a crosshatch over them, and we have the perpendicular yep. worlds. Perpendicular worlds are timelines that are so dissimilar to our own that they exist but are almost impossible to achieve travel to. Like if you were to attempt to create a Tarangriol, for instance, like uh, the the accepted you know testing thing, or a portal stone to travel to a perpendicular world, it probably wouldn't work. If it did work, it might destroy you. Perpendicular worlds are, instead of, like, shadows of what might have happened or different, like, what happened but with different physics or different magic or whatever, they are things that are nearly impossible to have happened. Huh. So. So, example. <laughs> okay. An example. I, I don't know if we actually have an, ex an example in the Wheel of Time. Um... It would, it would be something more like uh, the one power never existed. Or, uh, I don't know, like the, the Dark, dark one's one. prison was never made with a flaw or something like that. Or men never discovered the Dark One's prison, perhaps. Or never yeah, made possibly. the but, but, well, the, the interesting thing here is, though, as Varen describes, there are the constants with, with the even the perpendicular worlds, yeah. where well, the, the dark, dark one, one sorry, is yeah. imprisoned in all, of them. in all worlds. And if he stays imprisoned in one, he stays imprisoned in all. And then there's the paradox, if he's freed in one, he's freezing, freed in all. You know, like, so, like, Robert Jordan went, like, super metaphysical with his worlds. In, like, in, like, a couple of paragraphs spread out across the series, and then just never addressed it ever. <laughs> and, and let, like, the the really rabid fans like stumble over it and start like driving themselves crazy trying to figure all this stuff out. And if you really want to like dig into it, go to theoryland.com. Uh, you know, go through the interview database. Uh, Matt Hatch is the guy's name. He's the founder of Theoryland. He is like I've never spoken to somebody who is more uh, knowledgeable and invested in the metaphysics of the Wheel of Time. If you oh. want to go into like the philosophy and the like the world building, this is the guy to talk to. 
and uh, he's he's gotten some great opportunities to talk to both Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson Sweet. about the notes and, and the world building. If you want to like lose your mind on a deep dive, theoryland.com interview database and just like type in Matt Hatch and then like Matt Hatch. Go, yeah, go waste. 12 hours of your life. No, oh, this has been deep <laughs> penetrative lore with Jew. Did you? With Drew. Wow. My God, what is wrong with wow. me today? I just can't articulate <laughs> words or names. I, thought, I accidentally called Craig uh, Greg. I just called Andrew Jew for some reason. Like, I don't know. I don't feel so bad uh, about my oh dagger well, hilted ruby now. Yeah, yeah I know, right? Uh, it's that's, a, gee, that's a big it's old ruby. It's too of... bad. I have to grab it by the dagger, <laughs> right? Well, that sounded <laughs> filthy. <laughs> oh man, I can okay, feel well, I can uh, feel other Rob somewhere going. Oh, there's a disturbance in the force, you know. We had a, we had, we had a previous guest named Rob who was uh, yeah, an entertaining yeah. guy. Yeah, he nah. was he was on our Great Hunt episodes, but uh, yeah. So I don't have anything more about lore for right now. But I have questions before we go into the though. final draft. Oh, yes. Oh, questions about. Just things that have Let's been happening and I want some more clarification on. So th- maybe this will give you an idea, Craig, as to like my general knowledge level in the Wheel of Time. Um, so, Drew, chapter one. How are all of these women finding Moiraine? Is she Taviran, or rather, like, Taviran by proxy? Because these women can't even explain how they're finding her. No, they're, they're Blue Aja eyes and ears. She sent pigeons to them. Yeah, but they're, they, they, they themselves can't explain how they're finding her they just know no, they're they, feeling, they they're were told to pull. go to no no they specifically no, they were... say there's just an inexplicable pull that i'm feeling i can't explain it but i knew i had to be here and she would find me they say that several times don't they well there's only one of them that we talked to yes but Perrin That's internally Leah. thinks about the previous ones and how this is this this conversation is going to go exactly the same every time like he thinks about that all right let me I'm I'm at uh, I'm at the moment here. Um, am I am I just totally off base? Yeah, Craig, do you uh, remember any of these? She says, yeah, you got me there, "Okay." Craig. So Leah says, "I knew that if I came this way, someone would find me and take me to her. I just knew." Yeah, I have news for her. Okay, so that that you're seeing that as like a pull in the pattern. Yes. What it's... it is is Moiraine sent out pigeons to her eyes and ears. And told them, come to this area, and people will find you and bring you to me. And she just doesn't want to explain that she's been in contact with an Aes Sedai? Like, yeah. Okay. No eyes oh. and ears admit to that. Well, uh, okay. Yeah, good point. Okay. I, 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 I tentatively accept that. I accept that. Now, in that okay, same chapter, right. <laughs> or maybe it might have been the next one, Perrin specifically thinks about how Moiraine has the camp warded. And I use warded with a, you know, with a capital... Uh, on the W. Yeah. Uh, Capitanim, I believe that's called, now that I've... Uh, I just discovered that recently. Um, she warded so that no creature of the Dark One would see it unless he walked right into it. So why are Perrin and the Shyanarans bothering to shoot down these ravens? Surely, a raven that sees nothing is far less suspicious than a massive area where ravens just keep mysteriously disappearing. Oh, whoa, whoa. the warding on the camp is just around the camp. They were yeah. way outside the camp when they killed the raven. Okay. Okay, good good call. All right, thank you. All right, that makes sense. I didn't consider <laughs> that. Uh, last question, and I think I know the answer. 
I think. No, I don't think, actually. Who the hell is Sylvie in the Heart of the Stone in Teleron Riyadh who, who greets Egwene Sylvie and sends is her back to her bed? Okay. Um, what the hell is up with that incredible amount of pain that happened when she tangled her finger around the, the, the dream Terangriel? She, like, was, she was messing with Egwene. She was hurting She was her. just torturing her? Like, that wasn't just, like, yeah. some sort of mechanic with yeah. the uh, the Dream Terangriel and how, like, I don't know. The, so so if okay. you remember, like, a little before that, Egwene, like, chased after Els Grinwell down the hall and ran into Lanfear. Yeah, and that was and that was compelled her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and compelled her. But Lanfear was, like, super annoyed about it. Yes. And, and so, like, she's getting to the point when Egwene shows up where she's like, all right, you're, you're getting obnoxious where you're getting all up in my plans. So I'm just going to like mess with you and discourage you from doing this. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, Sylvie is Lanfear. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Sylvie's Lanfear. Okay. Uh, not Mulgadian. No. Lanfear. No. Okay. Cool. That's, uh, that's pretty much so, everything yeah. I have to discuss today. <laughs> Cool. Uh, uh, so, Craig, do you have any like kind of final thoughts about the Dragon Reborn? You know, not thus far. I uh, if this if we were discussing part two, there's a ton that's coming up. Um, the entire tier yeah. episode, from all perspectives, is uh, as an yeah, absolutely dude. magnificent climax to a book. And so, I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about that. Uh, but for now, I think I'm I'm gonna leave it where where we're at at least from my perspective unless drew you look like you had another question oh no i was gonna say uh you know as long as it, it you know works out schedule wise we'd love to have you on oh, next week for yeah. that climax. <laughs> well i'll see what i can do absolutely yeah so uh as as far as final thoughts for for uh rob are you uh no i i've pretty much said everything that i wanted to say for the first part i'm gonna have you can bet your ass I'm going to have so much more to discuss in part two, though. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But for now, I'm, uh, I'm pretty satisfied. I think we've had a pretty good discussion today, boys. Cool. So I only have one more thing to, to kind of go over, and that is how glaringly obvious it is that Shiryub is a dark friend. Oh, uh, <laughs> you know what? You just, you, just, you just shook something else free. One little piece came tumbling out. You're right, Shiryub. I didn't realize that uh, when they arrived there, I think the chapter was Tarvalon. I forget what number it is. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't realized until now, doing my first post, like, Memory of Light deep read, that the Wonder Girls in this scene were literally handed from one Black Aja agent to another. I didn't... Yeah. I hadn't... I just... Something I never picked up on before until now. Yeah. Like, there's so much information that gets lost during the whole handoff into Tarvalon. And then when the first Gray Man attack happens, and then Shirium is just there. Yeah. And, and that whole conversation Shirium has with Egwene and Nynaeve is just red flag after red flag after red flag. And I have no idea how I didn't notice that. Like, no, the same. First well, okay, thank series. you for I saying that last part know. because I felt like this was all a personal insult toward me because I, I did not see it coming <laughs> no. for sure. No, I definitely that, didn't yeah. either. That's, that's his point is how <laughs> did he not see it coming, I guess, right? Like, I didn't yeah. see it coming. It's it's like a it's it's like Brandon Sanderson with some of his Mistborn you know oh, foreshadowing thumbs like his nose when it, at when you it, in the future yes. yeah you, you get to the end and you're like 
of course that was what was happening. How did I miss it? You know, it was great foreshadowing. Phenomenally just deft dialogue to get all the the stones laid, but to a point where you're not even paying attention yeah. to to the bricklayer. And, like, you know, and, <laughs> and Nynaeve's point at the end of the chapter, how she goes, and there's one thing that Shiryam forgot to mention. She never wondered who stabbed him. And then there, yeah, as a reader, I'm yeah. going, oh, how, of, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Oh, my God, I must be yeah. stupid. That's the only thing I'm left with. And then and then the gray woman is found dead in Shiryam's bed yeah. with no mark on her, which means an Aes Sedai had to have killed her. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was so clear. How did we, like, ev- everybody, the collective Wheel of Time community just... Right over our heads. Yeah, and but yeah. Well done, so Mr. I, I think I think that'll bring us to the conclusion of our discussion of the book itself. But now we have the final draft. Yes. Rob, do you want to kick us off? I can kick us off for sure. Uh, so I went to the uh, the grocery store a couple days ago, and I was looking through their uh, their craft brews, and I found this little ditty from. Uh, a brewery that I have featured on this podcast before. I think I've actually featured them twice on this podcast before. This is either the second or third time. I think this is the third time. Is it Lost Craft? No, this is Collective Arts Brewing. Ooh. Lost Craft has oh, been twice okay. as well. Nice call, man. Damn. Um, this is Collective <laughs> Arts Brewing from Hamilton, Ontario. And today I'm drinking an IPA. Apparently it's a Hemisphere IPA. I have no idea what that means. Um, but this That's here, probably the title. Yeah, yeah it's, the this is a 6.8% ABV. Uh, IPA called Ransack the Universe. Right here. You oh. see the little thing there. Now, it doesn't tie too closely to our discussion today, but I just think it's kind of like a neat little theme that carries on with the dark one throughout the the entirety. Wait, of the well, doesn't time. this go yeah. right in with the whole discussion of parallel and perpendicular and all that? Oh, yeah. I guess, yeah, I wasn't yeah. planning on talking about that, but now since Drew, you brought that up, I, you know what, I can... <laughs> I can see that. Every, Since Drew brought that up, and thanks, Craig, for Every time you me, yeah. step into Teleron Rio, that's what you're doing. You're ransacking the entire you're universe. ransacking the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Craig. Oh, I like it. Threw me that lifeline. I over. like it. So, Craig, talk to me. What What have you been Well, uh, you know, because uh, I'm a reasonable person and not a, a horrific sinner like you guys, it's, uh, <laughs> we, started this, oh. we started this recording at 2.30 in the afternoon, everybody, and they're, they're all... Well, 4.30. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, fine. It's, it's already well past 5 you're, o'clock excuse. here in Ontario, but, uh, I just want to point that out. <laughs> uh, as, the, as the resident uh, old man on this episode, I decided to uh, go with the R.W. Knudsen family, just cranberry juice. This is pure cranberry Sweet. juice. Oh. There's no added sugars. There's no nothing. It's it good is for detoxification. It is yeah. the bitterest thing that has ever passed my lips, and I love it. Uh, so eight <laughs> ounces of that will have you uh, have you pooping like a champ for the next 36 hours. <laughs> nice. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, uh, so for myself, I did bring a thematically appropriate beer, <laughs> as I promised on the last episode. Mm. And uh, this is a double IPA from Odd 13 Brewing Odd, in Lafayette, oh. Colorado. Odd 13 already and, has it, surely. And I have to admit, I have to admit, uh, this beer... Uh, had been pulled off the shelves at the liquor store when I went there. I'd been like seeing it on the shelves, and I was like, "Oh, I gotta bring it for the first half of the Dragon Reborn because it's perfect." 
but apparently it aged out because like uh, IPAs are really really hoppy, right? You know, and yeah, I can still as they taste age, all the day. hops like attenuate a lot, and, and it turns into like a more of like a malty flavor profile. It's not as not as bright, not as flavorful. But I told him I was like, listen, I need this beer for the podcast. So even if it doesn't taste as great as it should, I need it. And so this is the book where we get maybe the biggest Chekhov's gun in the entire Wheel of Time. And that is The Turning. The 13 by 13, right? And this beer, and I will put this up to the camera, is called no. Double 30. No. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. Drew, you magnificent bastard. I, hats off, I'll drink to that one. There's only, there's a, only the ass end of this beer left, but I'll do that. Yeah, uh, it's... Uh, Nicely done. Hats I, off to you. I, I saw it, I saw it uh, like a month or so ago, and I was every time I you know went back in to get a beer for our podcast episodes, I looked at it on the shelf, and I was 13. like, yep. That's going to be uh, the episode when we cover Eggween's accepted test. So <laughs> Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Sweet. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, that'll bring us to the end here, yeah? This has been episode 31. 31 episodes. Of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. What's up? And our... Very special guest. Very special Craig guest. Craig Hanks from the Legendarium. Thank you so much for coming out here, Craig. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, we're uh, just thrilled to be doing the Wheel of Time, as always. Finally. Uh, it's, Finally. This this series means so much to, to Rob and myself, and, and I know, like, Craig, you know, that, that was a, a big step you guys took on your podcast, diving into 14 books of content. So we're happy to have you joining us. And uh, I, I will say this, just, uh, you know, hopefully I, I can come back for some future episodes as well. But um, yeah, it's been a little while since uh, since I finished this book. But I will say this, you know, I, I may not be as a long time a fan as you guys. I may not have as much of that deep lore knowledge and all that stuff. But, you know, like just about anybody, I think, who reads these books... I've closed book 14 and I was I, I was relieved. I was just done. I was like this that's an incredible amount of word count. I can't do this anymore. Book 14, thank goodness I'm done. And then it only took what a week maybe before I was like, "Oh, you know, I wonder maybe I should crack book 1 again and just kind of get started." Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so welcome to my yeah. prison. <laughs> and so it's uh I, I may not have kind of, you know, that history and the lore that you guys do have, but I have the love for it that I think a lot of people do. And so I'm glad to be discussing it with you guys and, and hope that people enjoy the episodes. Yeah, dude. Thank you so much My for pleasure. coming on today. Absolutely. And uh, for all of our listeners, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>